the headline story yesterday on CNN's uh, website said this. It said, um, there are now as many Americans who claim no religion as there are evangelicals and Catholics, a survey finds. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, and they go through and they, they tell you that, you know, it's, it's really close. The number of the numbers, they're sort of within the margin of error, and they go on and talk about it. Yeah, ten years ago, that story would have left me feeling very depressed and discouraged with and sad about the state of faith in our culture. When I read it yesterday, I literally wanted to do a cartwheel. I was so excited to read it in some ways, honestly. A seminary professor of mine named Ed Stetzer four years ago wrote an op-ed piece for USA Today in which he talked about this growing trend in America uh, toward what's called the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, people who are saying that they don't really have any type of religious belief. Maybe they're atheists, maybe they're agnostics, maybe they're spiritual, not religious. And in the article, he makes four fascinating quotes that I think bear me reading really quickly. One, he says, Christianity isn't collapsing, it's being clarified in America right now. I think that's really true. Christianity, in fact, is growing in America. Uh, However, what the cultural part of it is sort of collapsing, and so it's being clarified what it is in America to be a Christian. The second thing he said is churches aren't emptying. Rather, those who are Christian in name only are now categorically identifying their lack of Christian conviction and engagement. Boy, I I think that's really true. That tends to be my experience. We'll have friends visit from uh, the South uh, to come and worship here with us on Sundays, and they'll be like, man, I loved worshiping with your people. It was clear that every single person who sat there wanted to be there on one level or another. Maybe they are followers of Jesus, maybe they're curious, but nobody was there just out of sort of habit and obligation. I think that's really true. He goes on, he says, fakers who don't go to church are just giving up the pretense. Whew, man, that's good. That's good. Uh, That's a good thing. Uh, It leads to more honest discussion when we don't have to sort of weed through the the brush of unbelief masked uh, behind um, sort of like Christian subculture. And then he concludes the article saying the nominals are just becoming the nuns. And I think this is a good thing. We're going to celebrate today Jesus's, I want to tell you, I celebrate today Jesus's work in history. We can look at the Bible from 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus came on the scene and was alive for 30 years. And then when we can look at the Bible for the 30 or 40 or 50 years after that, uh, when the Bible, the canon closed, the Bible scriptures closed, and we can see that God has been at work in history, and we can read Christian history and see God at work in every century over the last 20 centuries. I celebrate God's work in history. I celebrate God's work in the Bible. I celebrate, I tell you, I celebrate what Jesus is doing in our city today. It's incredible. There are churches being planted all over our city of all kinds of different denominations and everything else, and some people that would make them frown and say, well, this is not good. I think it's great. I got a mailer yesterday for a new church that's coming in Medford. Did some of you get that? I was like, oh, cool, man. Like, that's fantastic. I don't want to drive to Medford on Sunday morning, but if somebody I went and looked at their website and prayed for their pastor and hope they succeed, I think that's fantastic. Like, churches are being started. God's at work in our city today. And God's at work in your life. Man, God's at work in your life. Um, I've loved this little mini season of six weeks of community groups. We'll start those back in a couple weeks. And um, 
It's been cool to hear you flesh out what God's been doing in your heart and in your life. I can see it and I get the privilege of being your pastor and celebrating that. Celebrate that God is at work. God's at work, but I will concede that Jesus in history has been more popular than he's been today. Like, I will concede that Jesus has been more popular. And I want to tell you about, we're going to read about a time when Jesus was much more popular than he is today. Here we go. John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12. Just some background. Last week we read John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so you've got to understand that that happened two miles outside of Jerusalem after about three years of Jesus doing ministry uh, in the area that's today modern day Israel. And so he is crazy popular. And there's a plot to kill Jesus. And there's also another plot to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. And that really kind of validates who Jesus is and what he said he was going to be about. And so Jesus is crazy famous. The religious establishment feels like they're losing their power, their grip, their influence, and there are plots uh, everywhere to get rid of Jesus and some of his people. And so in verse 12, it says this. Now, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, it's a religious feast that's happening right before Passover in Jerusalem. There's a huge crowd that's coming into the city to celebrate this. They're not, this is not the Jerusalem crowd. This is out-of-towners who are coming into the city. They hear that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt that comes from Zechariah 9.9, written hundreds of years before Jesus was on the scene. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of a tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. You can feel all of this crescendoing. It's at its high point emotionally, everything that's going on. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done that sign. So the Pharisees, verse 19, the, these are the religious sort of, uh, the religious establishment of Israel. These are the guys who've written all the Ten Commandments on the wall. Here they've got a little Ten Commandments poster. And then if you remember, and I don't know how many of you are Harry Potter nerds, but do you remember in, uh, the Order of the Phoenix where Dolores Umbridge begins to just write all the different rules for what the wizards can and cannot do? And there's this wall of massive rules. That's what the Pharisees have done. They've got their one little poster with the Ten Commandments. And then they've created hundreds of other posters of all the laws and the rules that can't be broken and have to be followed and things that have to be observed and they are freaking out because Jesus is saying there's two rules love God and love one another as you love yourself and they're losing their grip of power and it says in 19 so the Pharisees said to one another you see that you are gaining nothing look the whole world has gone after him now that's popular Jesus is crazy popular in this moment the religious establishment who've had uh, control of The people's hearts for decades are saying the whole world is now going after him. And so uh, it all sort of, they see their grip of power being loosened when Jesus comes in. They cut down palm branches and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, which means save us now. Save us now. Save us 
now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of, the, of Israel. They're saying, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. Be our king. Set us free from Roman rule. We're tired of being under the Roman uh, empire. We're tired of that. This is, uh, this is literally a crowd of people carrying the Obama hope and change poster wearing uh, make Israel great again hats. Like they've got like Jesus sort of hope and change posters and make Israel great again hats. And they're like, save us, save us, be our king, set us free. We want to be free. I thought about some of the great slogans in American political history. There's uh, I like Ike. Uh, I remember in uh, elementary school or in middle school learning this one uh, for William Henry Harrison. It was Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. It was so catchy that it literally swept him into the White House. There was It's the Economy Stupid. Uh, do you remember that one? Not too ancient. Uh, Happy Days are Here Again at the End of the Great Depression. Sort of FDR uses that to uh, usher in his presidency. Uh, Lincoln said, don't switch horses in the middle of the stream. Uh, not really like, not hope and change, but it was effective and made him one of the great uh, presidents as he was uh, elected about second term. And then change we can believe in. Such a, you know, like such a powerful um, ethos that comes with that. Like we want to believe that. Those are those sort of ideas and slogans made men president of the most powerful nation in the world, and yet those pale in comparison to what's going on here on Good Friday. These people, this is, this is them saying, come, be our king, save us, set us free from Roman rule, change our lives, make, make everything okay for us politically. And so then in 14, Jesus fulfills prophecy, as I shared with you, Zechariah 9.9. Jesus was totally cognizant of the Old Testament, and he shows that he's coming humbly. When a king would come into town to conquer, he would typically come in on a horse or a chariot, or even by this time, sometimes a camel. And yet here comes Jesus on a donkey, sitting on robes while people were laying palm branches before him. And they see this, and they know the scripture, and they're going nuts. They're going nuts. Like, they're just beside themselves, screaming out, save us, save us. They see Jesus as this second David. And David was the greatest king of Israel. And so after David, if you read the books in, in the Bible, if you, David's uh, uh, reign is really listed in 2 Samuel. And so then if you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, all the kings that came after King David are measured against David. They would say he followed in the steps of his father David, even though these are great, 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 great grandchildren of David, or he did what was wicked. He was nothing like his father David. David was the king by which all kings were judged. And so they look and they're like, they see Jesus fulfilling these scriptures and they're saying, come and be the second David. Be the greatest king. Bring us back to the good old days. Be our political Messiah. Bring us freedom. Bring us food because we're hungry in this Roman Empire. Bring us money. We're sick of paying out taxes. Bring us our nationalistic pride back. We're tired of being the, the redneck part of the Roman Empire. We want to be Israel. We used to be powerful. We were the most influential nation between Africa and Asia. We want that. We want to return to the good old days and get our power back. And Jesus, you are the one that can do it. And so Hosanna, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so there's four traits that mark that day. I'm going to give them to you really quickly. If you want to write this down, you certainly don't have to. But if you want to, this bears writing down. Four traits that mark Palm Sunday. One is hype. This day is marked by hype. This day is the equivalent of 2018's. It would be like if you got a royal wedding... Uh, A Thai soccer team being rescued from a cave. Uh, That yodeling kid on Ellen. Do you remember that? Um, And then you got the return of the Incredibles after all those years where there were no Incredibles movies. And then you get the second Incredibles. And the second one's actually better than the first one. It would be like that huge Avengers movie and Justin Timberlake singing the halftime show at the Super Bowl all rolled up into one event. This is hype. It cannot get more exciting than what's going on on that day. That marks the day. Hype. Second thing that marks the day is slogans. Slogans. Hosanna is not praise. We make it praise today. 2,000 years ago, it wasn't praise. It was propaganda. It was propaganda. It was them saying, Hosanna, save us. Be the king we want. Set us free. We want full bellies and no taxes. And we want to be Israel again like we were Israel 1,000 years ago. This is a slogan. Slogans mark the day. The third thing that mark the day is traditions. This isn't necessarily faith in God. For sure, some of the people there were like really believing God. But for a lot of these people, uh, this wasn't about relationship with God. This was them wanting big religion where religion and the state were tethered back in together. And Jesus was going to be the one who was going to get them there. And then the fourth thing that marked that day was trendy popularity. Trendy popularity. We used to have, uh, when we started our, the church in South Carolina that we started, uh, there was this constant temptation at times to try to like go big, do big church big. And we had to fight that because there was a statement we used to pass around among, church, among pastors that said, if you win people with the show, you have to keep people with the show. And it's easy to win people with a show. It's harder to keep people with the show. Shows are hard to put on all the time. And eventually, you know what? Whether it's in a dating relationship or a church or a job, when it's all built on a fake facade, finally you figure out, you know what? That person actually has problems. And that church isn't perfect. And even if it was, it's not anymore since I've been there. And every, like, you cannot, this day is marked by trendy popularity that's not sustainable. And Jesus would not have it. Jesus wasn't having it. Like he let it go on, but I want you to know Jesus wouldn't let following him be about hype, slogans, traditions, or popularity. And so he does, over the next three and a half days, he does three things. One, he withdraws. These are some of the last times that Jesus is ever in a big crowd. Uh, Second thing he does, he clarifies what he's going for. He doesn't say, hey, cool parade for me. I liked that. Can we do that again tomorrow? Like, he doesn't do that. He clarifies. He says, no, let me explain to you why I came. And he really begins to offend people. Really, the next three days are about offense. And it started with the religious establishment being mad that he was coming into their city. But over the next three days, it's not just anger. It's they're ready to murder this guy because he so clarifies what he's about. And so fast forward four days to John 18. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to 
show you what happens in a 24-hour window over the next four days. You've got the Last Supper where Jesus institutes uh, the Lord's Supper or the communion as we'll celebrate it here in a moment. And at that meal, the last meal Jesus would eat with his disciples, he predicts his betrayal. And then he goes from there to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray and he says famously, God, you know, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And the real significance, the saddest part of that is his friends who said, oh, we'll follow you to death. We'll follow you to death. We won't leave you. They all fall asleep and take a nap right there in the garden. And then comes Judas, one of the twelve, who totally betrays Jesus. And, they bring, and he brings with him this entourage of soldiers and religious establishment. And they come to arrest this man who never did anything wrong. And in that moment, other than just a few like fists flying and Peter wielding a sword, the disciples totally scatter and get out of town. And so then Jesus is arrested and he's all night just on the sham trial. Sham trial. So far at this point from Palm Sunday, he goes through this sham trial where he's passed between Pilate and Herod and no one can really figure out that he did anything wrong, but the people are angry and they want to be popular, so they follow. Then he's flogged 39 times with the cat of nine tails. They place a crown of thorns on him. I remember running through fields as a kid and you'd run through the briars, you know, and briars would get into your jeans and sometimes you'd even have jeans on and you know, they would, they would scratch your skin and, uh, and they, they, they take a, essentially a, a bramble of heavy briars and shove it down on Jesus' head. And they dress him like a king in a purple robe and they mock him and they spit on the Son of God. And they make him then carry his cross through Jerusalem on his exhausted, beaten, bloody shoulders, mocking him, spitting on him even more, gawking at him. And they crucify him outside the city with spikes being driven through his wrists and through his feet. And he's crucified naked. We've cleaned that up in our art and in the way we like to think of the crucifixion. And he's totally humiliated. More mocking, more spitting, more isolation. He's totally alone except for a few women and one disciple, John, who seems to be there. And then not only that, not only the physical agony and the emotional embarrassment of what's going on, but there's the psychological pain of this holy, perfect God-man in that moment who's never done anything wrong. The one person in history qualified, because you had to have a spotless lamb to pay for sin, the one person qualified to carry the weight of sin in that moment psychologically, taking on the psychological pain of carrying every sin ever committed. And none of us can comprehend that because Jesus paid for all of it. And then he bears the, or excuse me, and then he feels like here's the son of God who has existed from eternity in Trinitarian unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit being cut off from God. And so he shouts out, from the cross while blood is filling into his lungs and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he bears all of the wrath of God for sin. Again, a feeling we cannot feel. This is literally theologically impossible this side of eternity for you and I to feel this. Jesus on the cross takes all of the wrath of God for every one of us. 
And we, we come under his wrath for those who aren't Christians one day when we stand before him in eternity if we reject him from first breath to last breath. But for those who've accepted Christ, we will never experience the wrath of God because at the cross, Jesus took it in its entirety. And then finally, after a few hours, he dies. And he lets his spirit go and he says, the wrath of God has been satisfied and I can die. And professional executioners validate his death and then finish him off. He was already dead, but they confirm his death by sticking a sword into his side, at which point blood and water run out, which would prove that he had died. And we know now, 2,000 years later, this was not the end, but, uh, and we'll talk about, you know, next Sunday, like, the not the end part, but for the people there who didn't know, this had to have been totally disorienting. They didn't know that this wasn't the end. In fact, for them, like this was like we entitled this message "The End of the Beginning" because this was the end for them of everything they had known and hoped for, and all the hype and all the religion. It's like, oh no, that that's done. And so this. This day, in contrast to Palm Sunday, is marked by four traits. I'll give them to you really quickly. This day, rather than hype, is marked by hope. This day is marked by hope. Jesus said he came to die, and he died. That part seems sad. But the truth is, without, a de- without the death of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so every movie about the crucifixion I've ever watched and all the sort of cathartic emotions that leave me and the tears and the sadness and everything else, if Jesus does not die, sin cannot be paid for and forgiven. This day is not marked by slogans. This day is marked by salvation. Listen, we don't need a bumper sticker theology full of cliches and, uh, and we don't need a religion that all it does is tell us we're awesome. Like, we don't need that religion. That just is like, you're awesome, you do whatever you want, God is so nice, he's Grandpa Santa with Alzheimer's, just do whatever, you guys are great, we're all, you don't need that. And so this day is not marked by slogans, it's marked by salvation. The truth is, we need to be saved from sin, and on that day, Jesus accomplished that for us. The third thing, that day is not marked by traditions, that day is marked by convictions and beliefs. That day um, is people rejecting, listen, one thing that's become really clear to me in Charlestown, and I think it's just true universally, it's just more, it's just more obvious here to me, we have our traditions and we have our beliefs, and often there's a gap between traditions and beliefs, and traditions cost us nothing, like if we violate the traditions, like you know, somebody's told me, uh, one of our friends, uh, Mary Beth, told us, she said, uh, there is, you get supper guilt here. Like, you got to go to your family's house on Sunday afternoon for supper at 2 o'clock. And if you miss supper on Sunday, you're going to feel guilty. Grandma's going to make you feel guilty about that. She called it supper guilt. That's a tradition. Other than grandma being frustrated, there's nothing like violated in that. Beliefs are different. Beliefs cost. And this day with Jesus, listen, all the hype of Second David, restoration of Israel, all that is gone. And on this day, it's what do we believe about Scripture? Because there is the man who claimed to be the Son of God dead at the hands of Roman executioners. 
paying for our sin. The gap between traditions and beliefs, traditions and convictions can be wide, and it's hard. Like, uh, we'll talk about this more in a moment. Traditions come easy. My grandmother used to have this egg hunt. I'm off the script. It's always dangerous. And uh, it was a scavenger hunt, and you had to go to, like, that corner, and you would get something. And you'd find an egg, all the cousins. There were six of us. And we'd get an egg, and they would say, hop like a bunny over to that table. And then you would all, like, we'd look, like, have to hop like a bunny. And then you'd get over there and be like, cluck like an egg, or like a chicken over to here. And finally, at the end, like, there would be a pantyhose egg. Uh, that had like money in it or something good in it, you know, and th- like that didn't cost us a lot. It was a little pride, like all it was. Thank God it was before iPhones and everything was filmed because we look like idiots, like six little idiots running around for pantyhose eggs, like you know. And there's no evidence of it today. It didn't that tradition didn't cost us? Beliefs cost. Beliefs cost. And then the fourth uh, thing that we see there that's different is uh, there's the transition from what is trendy to what is personal. On that day, those who came to faith in Jesus did it alone. There's Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who carried Jesus' cross alone through the city when the weight of it became too much for him to handle. There was a thief on a cross realizing that he was guilty and deserved death and Jesus was receiving death but was not guilty and didn't deserve it and he Uh, became part of God's family and God's kingdom that day. There was a soldier who watched this happen and said at the end, surely this was the son of God, cut to the core by what he saw. And so those who received forgiveness that day, it wasn't sort of this swell of emotion of, man, we're in the middle of Hosanna, save us now. It was a very personal, unique, one-on-one decision to follow God. And so what are we supposed to do with this? What would Jesus which I think we have to, first of all, answer. I think, Joel, you probably preached a sermon like this before. My friend Joel's here today. We have to determine at this time of year which Jesus it is that we prefer. Which Jesus it is we prefer. Um, and statistically, people are leaving Palm Sunday Jesus, who costs nothing, who's just trendy and full of slogans. Statistically, that's sort of part of our American narrative, at least for the foreseeable future, is dying and going away. And we have to pick, do we want Palm Sunday Jesus or do we want Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday Jesus? And so here I think are a couple things I think we ought to do. One, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to repent of your sin and to give your life to the Lamb of God. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus is a way to heaven. It says that Jesus says that he is the way to heaven. And if he is in fact God's son and God let his son die on the cross in that manner, and there is some other way through good works or some other God, then God is the greatest divine child abuser in history. There is no other way. Like everything rises and falls on whether or not Christianity is true. And this event at the cross and the empty tomb validates it in every way. And so if someone's here and you're not a Christian, you need today to repent of your sin and trust Jesus. It is not this sort of, a little bit of believing in God, a little bit. I talked to somebody yesterday. She was like, well, I'm kind of a Christian. I'm kind of a Buddhist. And I'm kind of, I was like, well, then you are not doing well at any of those. Because those are very conflicting belief systems. Second thing, Christian, I want to encourage you to take a long view of living on mission. 
we are, people are in a state of cultural and spiritual flux. And this is going to shake out for our benefit as Christians. But the days of uh, sort of this Hosanna, this mass like Christians sort of operating from the center of culture, those days are long gone. And we've got to love for a long time and live well for a long time and be intriguing to our neighbors and co-workers and friends. I, I want to tell you, our church is growing. Uh, I don't usually keep numbers on it. Uh, you know, like you want to jump off the Zakem Bridge like after a bad Sunday. If you, like, but this year, I'm keeping numbers. Every month, our church is growing. It's really cool to watch that happen. It's beautiful that God is growing his Church, I want to encourage you to be intentional and keep living on mission and know that in incarnating the gospel among your neighbors and coworkers and friends is a slow process. Living this faith out is not, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, you know. It's slow and it requires thoughtfulness and laying down our lives. Third, keep your eyes open. God is at work, but it's not always obvious. There's a thief who gives his life to Jesus that day and dies moments later. There's uh, an, an onlooker who just was in the crowd and he comes to faith that day, probably wouldn't have even seen him or thought anything of him. There's a soldier who sees Jesus die and just says, man, that's the son of God. That's not grandiose. It's harder to see. Keep your eyes open. Watch where God's at work. And then four, celebrate the death of cultural Christianity. We need to celebrate the death of cultural Christianity. Uh, When we strip away this easy cultural church, like church nonsense, we get to a place where we can have an open discussion with people about whether they accept or reject Jesus. And this is good. This is what we want. Like, we don't want to hide behind this Palm Sunday sort of trendy, euphoric, slogan-based religion. We want to have frank discussions with people about what they do and don't believe, so we celebrate the death of cultural Christianity. It was the mid-19th century. There had been revival in Wales. Uh, Welch and German missionaries went to India to spread the gospel message in Assam, which is in northeast India. They were having very little success with any of this until a man and his wife and his two sons decided to follow Jesus and a couple of more villagers then decided to follow Jesus and it angered the chief. It made him so angry, in fact, that he called all the villagers in this village together and said, we've got to have a meeting and we've got to deal with these people. So he brings the man uh, and his wife and his kids and they're all bound up and he says to the man, Renounce your faith or watch your sons die. And spontaneously, he begins to sing a song where he says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And as he's singing, they mow down his sons. And then the chief looks at the man and says, Renounce your faith right now or lose your wife. And, um, buddy, would you come and just mind to start playing? And, uh, and the man begins to, again, spontaneously sing. This is the writing of this hymn. And he says, though no one join me. We sing it as though none go with me. But in that moment, in the 18, mid-1800s, he says, though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And they kill his wife. And then they say, you're about to die. 
renounce your faith or lose your life. And he says, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And he loses his life. And in that moment, something incredible happens. As the four of them lay there dead, martyred for their faith, the chief immediately ponders what he's just witnessed. And he says, surely these people have died for the living God. And he immediately converts and says, I want to trust Jesus. And the entire village converts to the point that if you go to this part of India today, this is the song of these people. I've decided to follow Jesus. This is their song. There's a part of me that hears that story and thinks, well, that's a, that's a story of defeat. That's a story of defeat. It's not a story of defeat. It's a story of victory. It's a story of victory. When we align with Jesus, God is glorified. Cliches and traditions and easy beliefism are stripped away. And true belief is the most compelling thing in the world. The world doesn't need, America doesn't need 100 million lukewarm Christians. Charlestown doesn't need 1,000 mediocre cultural Christians, priesters. We don't need that. We need people wholly committed to Jesus, no matter what the stakes. True belief is compelling. All glory be to Jesus. Today, I would encourage us in our hearts to trade our palms of slogans and cliches and hype and tradition for the conviction of following Jesus. Let me pray for us.